I want you to look at this picture and tell me what you see. You don't actually need to do that. The Rorschach test was invented by a Swiss psychologist in the 1920s um, in order to assess a patient's mental or emotional state. Now, I'm not a psychologist, um, an A-level much too long ago for me to remember aside. Um, But like most of us, I've seen Rorschach tests on films or TV. Um, So this may not be the way it's supposed to work, but the impression I've been given is that you look at the picture, and if you see a a butterfly or a bunny, um, you're just fine. If you see some terrifying beast, then maybe it means you need to book another appointment. Um, The book of Jonah is a bit like a Rorschach test. It shows us a picture of God. It doesn't go into detail explaining every aspect of what it shows us. Rather than giving us answers, the book of Jonah is more interested in asking us questions. It shows us a picture of God, and it says, what do you see? Jonah's a book that's more interested in asking us questions uh, than giving us answers. And so as we start this very familiar book, we need to be ready to ask ourselves What do we make of the God that Jonah shows us? How will we respond to the God that Jonah describes? Now, this morning, we're going to fly through the story of Jonah chapter 1. Then we're going to circle back and think how we're to respond to what it shows us about God. Are you ready? Well, let's jump in. Uh, Verse 1 starts on familiar territory. Uh, Just like reading in a, a book, Once Upon a Time, uh, tells you that you're in for a fairy story. Or if you go to the cinema and you see those words a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, you know what's coming next. A big yellow logo and big fanfare telling you that this is a Star Wars film you're in. Um, Our story this morning begins with words that tell us this is a story about a prophet. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go. This is how stories about prophets are supposed to start. God calls his prophet, gives him a message, tells him to get up and get going. It's familiar stuff, and we're still on familiar territory when it comes to the identity of the prophet himself. This isn't the first time the Bible has spoken about Jonah. We already know him from 2 Kings chapter 14. No need to turn there. Let me read to you. Uh, It says, King Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hepher. Well, a familiar call to a semi familiar prophet, I suppose, but from this point on, Nothing in the book of Jonah goes as we would expect. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Go where? God, are you serious? Nineveh was the sort of place that would send shivers up your spine um, lying 500 miles northeast of Jerusalem in modern-day Iraq, it was a prominent city in the, the vast and vicious Assyrian Empire. Uh, the Assyrians really were history's nasty neighbors. Uh, they were famed for their violence as they conquered the cities and people around them. 
Their bloodthirsty savagery, it wasn't kind of their skeleton in the closet, something they boasted about. You can uh, read the writings of the kings of Assyria speaking about how they ripped out the tongues of their prisoners, skinned their enemies alive, how they built towers of severed heads and hands. Assyria had turned cruelty into an art form. And they weren't just scary people in general. They were a direct threat to God's people in particular. And in the years to come after Jonah, the Assyrians would wipe the kingdom of Israel off the face of the earth. And the palace of Nineveh itself was decorated with uh, massive carvings on the walls depicting their conquest of a city in Judah and all the cruel things they did to their inhabitants. You can uh, go and see it for yourself if you go to the British Museum today. Now, neither of those things had happened by this point, but it does give us a flavor of what Nineveh was like. It sets the tone for what God is asking of Jonah here. Get up and go to the fiercest, most savage enemies of your people and call out against them. Their evil has come up before me. So, verse 3, Jonah got up and ran as fast and as far as he could in the opposite direction. He went to Tarshish, or he tried to. Tarshish is thought to be uh, somewhere around Gibraltar, uh, sort of Spain's direction. And it stands in the Bible as the edge of the known world. It's as far as you can possibly go west. Jonah isn't sneaking in one Mediterranean city break before starting his new job. He's running away from God and from the mission that God has given him. He's desperate to get away from the presence of the Lord, and his desperation sends him into a downward spiral. Uh, Did you notice Jonah's trajectory uh, as we read through that passage? Uh, Verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is going down and down. Now, maybe over the next few weeks, you'll have that familiar feeling of sitting on a motionless ferry uh, or aeroplane, desperate for, for it to set off and take you to your destination. And once you feel that that judder of the engines firing into life, Uh, the landscape start to move slowly past your window, Uh, maybe you can spare a thought for Jonah uh, as you start your journey. Uh, He must have been the most relieved person in Israel as the ship set out from Joppa. Phew, I got away with one there. But God wasn't finished with Jonah just yet. While the boat is out at sea, the sailors begin to feel the wind whipping up more than normal. Before they know it, they're in the middle of a full-blown storm, but this is no ordinary storm. This storm has been thrown by the hand of God. Verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The God from whom Jonah is running effortlessly throws huge gusts of wind on the sea, just like we might roll up a piece of scrap paper and throw it in the bin. Uh, Imagine the scene on deck. Can you see the the terror in the eyes of these hardy sea dogs as, as masts crack 
This rigging shatters and flies around in all directions as the timbers of the boat heave and creak in protest. Just like the Lord hurled the storm, the sailors are forced to hurl their precious cargo overboard in an attempt to stop the ship from breaking apart and becoming a shipwreck. Well, it's better to lose your livelihood than your life. Can you hear the sound of the wind whipping around and waves crashing against the side of the boat and the panicked cries of the sailors filling the air as each of them cries out to any god who will listen, save us! Well, above deck, it's a scene of chaos and terror and panic. And where's God's prophet in the midst of all this deadly peril? Shh, he's asleep. Come below deck and have a look. There's Jonah lying on the floor. Sound asleep. Now, we might share the captain's astonishment. How could anyone sleep at a time like this? Verse 6, the captain comes and says to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? I mean, we might say, what are you playing at? Arise, call out to your God. Arise, call. The very same instructions which God had given Jonah right at the start of the chapter. And still, despite his stormy circumstances, Jonah won't do it. He gets up, but he doesn't call on God. Jonah is a prophet who stubbornly refuses to open his mouth, either to speak for God or to God. And now we're back above deck. Things have got really, really desperate. The sailors know the seas well enough to know that this storm is supernatural. Someone on board has made some God somewhere very angry. So they get out straws to see who draws the short one. Verse 7, they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And suddenly, Jonah is in the eye of a storm of interrogation. And you can imagine the, the different questions being shouted at him from different members of the crew. Who are you? What do you do? Where are you from? And for the first time in the book... Jonah clears his throat and speaks. Verse 9, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the sailors' jaws drop. Maybe they put their head in their hands. All of them cry out at once, What have you done? Jonah wouldn't have had to declare the purpose of his journey like we might have to at passport control. Uh, But it seems that before settling down for his seaside slumber, Jonah had let the crew know why he was so desperate to get away to Tarshish. He'd told them that he was fleeing from God, but it seems that he hadn't told them about the power of the God he was fleeing from. Jonah isn't running away from some dinky deity. His God is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Can you see the flaw in his plan? These sailors can. You're trying to flee across the sea to get away from the God who made the sea. Where on earth can you expect to get away from the God who made the earth? These pagan sailors see clearly what the prophet is blind to. Jonah should know better than this. 
He does know better than this. There's nowhere that's beyond God's reach. But there's none so blind as those that will not see. And Jonah is stubbornly determined not to engage with the reality of God's power and presence. Oh, in verse 11, uh, things get even more ludicrous as the sailors turn to Jonah and ask him what they need to do for the sea to calm down. Um, he's the only one who knows the God who's got it in for him, um, so he's the only one who knows how to appease him. Uh, imagine a top judge being found guilty of bribery and corruption, and as the guilty verdict is announced, uh, the court turns to him and asks him to suggest his own sentence. It's a little bit like what's going on here with Jonah. Jonah, what are we supposed to do to you that your God will let us go? And as the storm grows more and more fierce, Jonah speaks up again. There's only one way to calm this storm. Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. These sailors do all they can to avoid taking Jonah's life. They sit down, grab their oars, and make one final effort to row back to shore. But the harder they row, the harder the storm blows. And as the waves become fiercer than ever before, the captain and his men exchange grim looks. They know there's only one thing for it. But before they send Jonah to sleep with the fishes, they do what Jonah should have done right at the start of this chapter. Verse 14, therefore they called out to the Lord. God told Jonah to call out against Nineveh, and he refused. The captain pleaded with Jonah to call out to his God, and he refused. And now these sailors put God's prophet to shame by calling on his God for themselves. And they plead their case before the Lord. Don't blame us for killing your prophet. Don't make us guilty for his life. With their prayers completed, they pick Jonah up and lob him into the sea. And as soon as he sinks beneath the waves, everything goes still. Like a pan that's been taken off the boil, the sea becomes as calm as a mill pond. And these sailors, they don't need any further evidence. This display of power has made up their minds. Jonah's God really is the God of heaven. He really is the one with the power over the sea and the land. And therefore, he's the God who alone deserves their worship and praise. So they turn from worshiping their own gods and give God the honor he deserves. Well, it sounds like a good ending to the story, doesn't it? The rebellious prophet has got the punishment he deserves. The God of heaven has proved his power and receives the worship he deserves. But it's not the end. Uh, there's a twist in this tale. Just when we're expecting the credits to roll, something fishy happens. I apologize. <laughs> the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Hump! And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Did you see that coming? 
Well, of course you did, because you've heard this one before, haven't you? But imagine if this really was your first time ever hearing the story of Jonah. Wouldn't this final sentence come completely from the left field? Comes out of nowhere. The Lord, the God of unlimited power, he doesn't just use that power to send storms, but to send a great big fish to rescue his rebellious servant from his watery grave. It's showing us who this God is. He's not just the God of unlimited power. He's the God of outrageous grace. God would have been well within his rights to let Jonah sink to the bottom of the ocean, never to be seen or heard of again. But this God doesn't stand on his rights. This God is a God of grace who relentlessly pursues those who rebel against him in order to rescue them. Well, it's a great story, and it shows us a great God. But God's word never stops there. It always asks us to respond. So the question that Jonah 1 is asking this morning is, how will you respond to this God? That's what we're going to spend a few moments thinking about together. First, how will you respond to the God of supreme power? Now, it's impossible to miss the power of God in this story. Of course, his most impressive display of power is in the storm. But this God isn't just the God of the storm. Did you notice all the other displays of God's power in this story? He's the God who controls everything from the biggest things to the smallest, right down to the roll of a dice. Did you notice the the sailors, they cast lots and the lot fell on just the right person. Because God is in control, even of the small things. He's the God of heaven who created everything we see. And such is his control over his creation. He's even, to make sure, he's even able to make sure that the right fish is in the right place at the right time to gobble Jonah up and rescue him. He's extraordinary. This is the God of supreme power. This passage shows us exactly how we're to respond to him. Jonah's decision to flee from God, it's shown to us as ridiculous. The right response to this God is not to flee, but to fear. Fear runs all the way through this passage. As soon as God sends the storm in verse 5, we're told that the mariners were afraid Each cried out to his God. After learning the identity of Jonah's God in verse 9, in verse 10, we're told the men were exceedingly afraid. Then down in verse 16, at the, the pinnacle, the height of this story, we're told that those same men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The message of this passage is clear. The right response to this God is to fear him. Now, of course, when the Bible uses the term fear to describe how human beings are to relate to God, it it doesn't mean the sort of terror I feel when some great big hairy-legged spider crawls out across my peripheral vision. Emma, help! We're not supposed to be stuck in a state of perpetual terror of God. Fearing God means to worship him, to acknowledge his supreme power, 
and to bow down before him, to submit our lives to his rule as our creator. Now, we might think that sounds terribly old-fashioned or even terribly Old Testament. Is this really the way we're supposed to relate to God now? Are we really to have this sort of fear of Jesus? Well, think back to that storm we read about earlier in our service in Mark chapter 4. Those waves were just as fierce. Experienced fishermen were just as terrified. Jesus, like Jonah, was fast asleep. But when he awoke, there was no panic or interrogation. Just two commands. Peace. Be still. And it was. And remember how his disciples, even his closest friends, reacted. They were terrified of the storm. But once it was calm, they were even more afraid. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? They were terrified because they knew that that God of supreme power was in the boat with them. Jesus is the God of supreme power. So do you fear him? Are you worshipping him? Our reflex might be to bristle. Of course I am. I'm at church, aren't I? This passage shows us that when it comes to fearing God, talk is cheap. Did you notice how Jonah claimed to fear God in verse 9? Right when he was in the middle of rebelliously running away from him. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Like some celebrity caught up in the act of uh, cheating on their partner who insists to the tabloids that they, they really do love their spouse and children. Sorry, Jonah, your words don't match up with reality. It's easy for us to point the finger at Jonah, but isn't this such an easy trap for us to fall into? As a Christian, it's so easy to live a double life. We can turn up to church on a Sunday Uh, We can be a Christian in front of our church friends or our family, but at work or at school or university, even online, we can be a completely different person. It's easy to point the finger at Jonah, but we need to think this through for ourselves. Jesus, the God of supreme power, doesn't want us to be like Jonah, talking the talk, but not walking the walk. He wants us to be like the sailors, to recognize his power, to repent and give him our allegiance, to fear him. Now, it may be that we feel very, very guilty as we think of areas of our lives where we're, we're falling short of that fear of God which the passage commends to us. Now, perhaps we can think of areas of our lives where we could be described as fleeing from God. If that's true for you, Don't be afraid. Don't feel like it's all over. Like with Jonah, God isn't done with you yet. Remember that God of power who stilled the storm is the God of grace who hung on a cross to pay for the sins of his people. As well as asking us how we'll respond to the God of supreme power, this passage asks us, how will you respond to the God of outrageous grace. God's grace and how we respond to it is really the big theme of the book of Jonah. We'll see it coming up in every chapter of this short book. 
It's easy to miss amongst the crashing waves and howling wind of chapter one, but it's there if we'll look for it. We see his undeserved kindness from the very first verse. Why does the God of unlimited power bother to send a messenger to Nineveh rather than just squash them for their evil? Because he's a God of grace and mercy and he wants them to turn from their evil ways. Why does God bother sending a storm to stop Jonah in his tracks and a fish to stop him from drowning? Because he's a God of relentless grace who pursues even those who rebel against him. If you're a Christian here this morning, you can know that the God of supreme power has used that power to show his grace to you. Do you ever stop to think about the incredible lengths God has gone to to bring you into a loving relationship with you? Of course, the most extraordinary thing he's done is send his son as a sacrifice for our sin. But as well as that, he's, ex- he's orchestrated just the right circumstances of our lives that we might come to him and put our trust in him. I've been a Christian about 18 years now, and some days I still can't believe I'm here. No church background, no interest in Jesus, but as an 11-year-old, he put me in just the right class, in just the right school, to meet just the right person who was trusting in Jesus and not afraid to show it. And after a few years, he put me in just the right circumstances to accept an invitation to a youth club where I heard the truth of the gospel explained. Where he gave me just the right teaching so that I could see my sin and my need of a savior. Isn't that amazing? Your story will be very different, but it's no less amazing. However you've come to know God, God has used his supreme power to pursue you with his outrageous grace. Oh, well, I was brought up in a Christian family. Brilliant. God could have put you in any family in the world. He put you in yours. Isn't that wonderful? If you're a Christian, the God of supreme power has used that power to show you his outrageous grace. How will we respond to him? We've got to be thankful, haven't we? And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus, can I take this opportunity to invite you to come to him? The God of power is the God of grace. Rebellion against him isn't just futile because he's so big and powerful, but because he's so good and so loving. He pursues us with his grace. And perhaps today is the day to stop running, to turn from doing things your way, to call out to God and accept his offer of salvation through the Lord Jesus, to vow with his help to follow him for the rest of your days. Jonah shows us the God of supreme power and outrageous grace. How will you respond to him?